Welcome back, everyone, to TransUnion's December Extra Credit Podcast. Today, we have a special guest, yet again, Paul Siegfried, the head of card and banking vertical at TransUnion, joining us for a year-end recap of the card and banking market. Paul was on when we kicked off this whole podcast routine uh, about a year ago, and he gave a similar perspective. And if you remember, Paul has deep card experience with previous leadership stints at Fifth Third, Visa, and FNBO. Thanks for having me. And Paul's also our boss, Greg, so we have to be on good behavior here. Right, right, of course. Yeah. Hey, Paul, before we kick off, you know, I'm, I'm just curious, and many of our listeners know you and are familiar with you, and, and Craig mentioned some of the places that you've spent time. You, know, you you lead a business that spans 5,000 depositories, card issuers, others in the United States. And what are some of the things that you've picked up along your, your career and those various stops that you kind of inform your thinking or bring to bear every day in your work? Well, I think the one universal thing that uh, that I picked up on is that uh, this is an industry, financial services, uh, that serves consumers. Right? They're all people. Uh, these are people that work jobs or they've worked jobs and now they're retired uh, that have needs for their deposit uh, needs, their payment needs, their borrowing needs. Um, they're at different stages of their lives. Uh, again, some are maximum borrowing, some are maximum deposits. And at the end of the day, uh, it's about meeting the needs of those consumers the best that we can as an industry, again, both today and, and in the future. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And I know that's something you you continually remind us to, uh, remind us of as we do our work. Yeah, that there's always a consumer at the end of everything that we do within this industry. And it would encourage all of our uh, uh, customers, small to large, to always uh, reflect upon the consumers that they're serving. Who are their customers? Uh, and how to serve them the best they can every day. Yep. Good. I think that's really important. Hey, Josh, do you re- think we're ready to jump into our fun little trivia section? Go for it. All right. Paul, not only is he a card and banking guy, he's a car and truck guy. So we have put together um, some trivia questions, some fun, some easy, some difficult. So let's see how you do, Paul. I'll say the first section that we have are just some, I guess, questions on on facts about at at the market level. So, first question: What is the best-selling automobile of all time? Oh my goodness! Best-selling automobile of all time. Oh my gosh! You might have stumped me already. I'm gonna just say. Uh, Given model and brand, I'll actually go out there and say it, it's probably still today the best-selling model and brand. I'll say the Ford F-150. So I will tell you, that is the number one selling uh, truck of last year and a few years before that. But the all-time best-selling automobile of all time, and again, this is worldwide, Toyota Corolla. Oh, absolutely. All right, Paul. So pretty good. You were in the ballpark. 
Now I've got another one. This one has to do with speed, velocity. What is the fastest commercially produced auto for consumer use? Fastest, I, I think you have to qualify this. Fastest acceleration, fast, or fastest, the top speed? Top speed. Top speed. Good. Uh, Production model, top speed. I do like how you narrowed it down. Mm-hmm. Got me very specific. That was great. Yeah. I, I would, you know, it might be the same. I I have a feeling um, the Tesla might actually be, or one of the Tesla models might actually be the fastest production. Not even close. It's the Bugatti Chiron oh. Super Sport at 305 miles per hour. So... I I've, I know because I have one. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> so I would, I I will take the loss on that one. But Bugattis are, so, I mean, every piece of that is handmade. Um, I I would question if it's really a production car. I, I it's debatable, but I'll give it to you. Absolutely. Craig lives in a fancy neighborhood, so his, his perspective on this is a little he different does. than yours and mine. Well, I have to get away from my neighbors quickly. Um, <laughs> Next question. What is the most popular color for new cars? Most popular color for new cars. I'll give you a top four. See how many you can get out of the top uh, four. White, silver, black. Three of the top four. White was the number one. So you, you get it. The fourth one was gray. And that's almost 80% of all cars produced. We're almost back to the Ford principle, right? Mm-hmm. You, Any you color it. you want, as long as it's black. Mm-hmm. You got, well, I'm sure there's lots of distinctions, metallic gray and all that. Well, all right, let's get to the meat of it, Josh. I think you're up to kick this off. All right. So, Paul, this has been quite the year. And and as we did last, you want to get your perspective on kind of, you know, where you think we are on this, this crazy roller coaster ride we've been on for the last few years. And when we spoke last year, you you really made the point, which I think was a, a good one, that it's the degree to which the consumer is going to lead us out of, of turbulent economic times. It's really important. So wanted to ask you a, a couple questions here. One, just what's your perspective on the the state of the American consumer and their financial health right now? And then two, you know, are there any particular segments of consumers or areas that we should be paying close attention to? Well, Josh, it's a great question, and and to your point, this year has been somewhat uh, a year of uh, incredible strength um, and some level of question of what's ahead. Uh, you know, when we think about the consumer, I think the state of the consumer right now is uh, we have many consumers who over the last two to three years have become financially stronger. Um, They've been able to, in in many cases, borrow more money at a lower price. Uh, And so um, while they borrowed more, the cost of service at debt is not near as high as it would have been uh, with higher interest rates uh, prior to all uh, of our increase to the interest rates. Um, And I I think at the other end, we have consumers that, given the state of inflation, uh, are very much exposed right now they're having to make difficult decisions uh, about what they buy, how they buy, where they buy, uh, and again, substituting uh, what they're buying 
And it's because consumers that uh, are on fixed incomes or consumers on the lower side of the income uh, segment that have not received uh, a higher level of uh, increase in their wages uh, are really seeing those challenges. Um, you know, right now we've seen inflation affecting the consumer for about 15 to 18 months. Uh, this has uh, affected nearly every common good in their household, uh, whether it's the price uh, of transportation to the price of food, uh, to the price of other types of goods. Um, and it, it just means that, um, again, many consumers have to make tough choices uh, in terms of uh, how to make uh, those ends meet at, at, the, um, at the lower side of the income. Um, as far as segments to, to follow and be aware of, uh, I really think it's all segments. And I think uh, while there's a cautious side of, um, of the risk uh, spectrum, I think at the opposite side, there's consumers uh, who are less worried about inflation or less impacted by inflation. And I think what we've seen many of these consumers in the card industry, for example, making choices this year about what credit cards they want to use, what credit cards to acquire um, is a great year to be a consumer regarding the value propositions. We see you know, higher yielding rewards programs for consumers today than we saw two, three years ago. And I think consumers see that and uh, they're out to take advantage of those opportunities. We've seen surge in cash programs uh, over the last two years uh, where perhaps maybe travel wasn't as popular, cash has taken over. Uh, and so while it's not dominating spend, it definitely has dominated the growth uh, in, in terms of uh, again, both the value for the consumer and also uh, as we think about um, where originations uh, would be strongest. So I, I want to build on that a little bit, Paul, and, and we've seen this year record quarters in terms of credit card originations. We're seeing balances that are back at or above where they were pre-pandemic. Uh, so those are all good signs. Now you just talked about some of the challenges with consumers uh, and that consumers are facing. Certainly those those programs you talked about with cashback or rewards or the things that, that credit card issuers are doing, those don't come cheap uh, to offer. So I'm curious in in absolute terms, you know, how do you think the issuers are holding up and, and in relative terms to you know other lending operations within a bank, be that auto loans or or personal loans, you know, how what's your view on on kind of the the health of the credit card issuer. Yeah, I think you know there's a health of the credit card issuer, and then there's a health of the consumer wallet uh, where you were pressing as well. I think you know when we think about um, the traditional credit card lenders uh, today, um, they're all uh, seeing you know challenges just in terms of competition. Uh, from uh, each other. Uh, you mentioned you know record, and we've seen six out of six of the last quarters are, are certainly uh, high, if not record, um, origination quarters for credit card. And uh, again, most of it driven by both the, the lender's uh, optimism and the consumer, and the consumer's optimism 
in their ability to uh, take on uh, new credit cards and also their willingness and desire to to um, not just access credit cards, but also those desire for those rewards um, that that so many uh, cards have. Not all of them, certainly, but but so many of them uh, do. Um, and so I think issuers are having to take on a higher price uh, for those rewards. Um, and with the hope that they'll be rewarded by consumers in terms of their loyalty and their spend and their balances. Um, and so, you know, I think it's always a, a tough time uh, as we look at the, the current environment. We've got higher rates of funding, uh, so lenders are going to be challenged um, on one end um, with the, the higher cost of funds, uh, but they should also um, see that catch up in terms of uh, interest rates, variable interest rates uh, increasing over time. So, um, you know, I think the card is less exposed um, to some of the price uh, shifting with increasing rates than other types of, of loans. Uh, I think that um, we've seen uh, consumer lending, uh, auto, and certainly mortgage, uh, where mortgage rates have uh, more than doubled, almost tripled uh, in many cases over the last year and a half, uh, which changes dramatically um, the, the the mortgage lending market and actually the home uh, buying market as well. Uh, so I think you know credit cards able to uh, sustain itself uh, and again just less sensitive uh, to um, those dramatic price swings um, than others. And just in terms of the, the consumer wallet, uh, consumer borrowing has reached um, an all-time high. And, and I think that there's uh, part of that, whereas you've got, again, in 2020, 2021, you had some of the lowest mortgage pricing ever uh, on record and consumers racing to take advantage of those um, low rates by borrowing, uh, by buying new homes. Uh, and and so we've seen now, uh, I believe, real estate uh, mortgage uh, lending um, has now exceeded $11 trillion, I believe. Um, again, all-time record. And if you look at the wallet, um, you know, as long as those home prices stay uh, what we would say in the money in terms of equity, uh, you would expect the consumer to protect that property um, and to have uh, the hierarchy um, that we've traditionally seen where auto and and uh, mortgage enjoy uh, the top of the hierarchy, and then card and consumer lending uh, have a higher delinquency and charge-off rate. Um, if we were ever to see it, you know, what we saw in 08, 09, where all of a sudden we started to see home prices decrease, uh, I think that that creates um, more exposure um, for delinquency and loss in the mortgage market. Good. And Paul, thinking about the the credit card issuers specifically, you before you joined Craig and me, you were on the phone with the executive team from one of the largest issuers out there, and you spend a lot of your time talking to to groups like that, to to credit unions and and others. What are some of the trends that you're hearing in terms of of what they're asking you, and are there things in those conversations now that you find surprising? Well, I would say the one trend that we've probably spent the most time on over the last 60 days is understanding the population. And we started talking earlier today about the consumer and really understanding 
you know, the consumer isn't one thing, it's millions and millions of things. Um, it's all of us as individuals, how we uh, behave and, and, and interact um, as a borrower. And you know, I think that's had a lot of the, the headline, a lot of the conversation around is population stability uh, what we expect. Um, we saw a rise of scores back in 2020 as bank card balances dropped. Uh, you would expect to see a rise in scores, and we saw that. And as borrowing has picked back up, we've started to see the reversion of those scores uh, and really trying to understand that population stability. Uh, is it has it normalized? Um, that is a lot of our conversation right now in terms of helping lenders understand has the population stabilized? If so, how or if so, when? Um, and then how does that um, relate to the particular strategy of the lender? Uh, if the lender is dedicated to a prime and above or prime plus and above, uh, how does how does that uh, stability impact them? If it's non-prime, uh, how does that impact them? Uh, non-prime lenders actually had seen in, in 20 and 21 somewhat of a contraction of their traditional um, segment as consumers uh, saw a score increase. And so uh, you actually saw an expansion of non-prime lending to consumers that didn't have cards before. Uh, so we actually saw our, our largest expansion in recent time for new to credit uh, in the 1920-21 uh, cohorts. No, that, that's helpful perspective, Paul. And, and thinking about some of those those conversations that you're having, you know, we this is the time of year when everyone to you and our customers are are really starting to to broadly communicate the plans for next year and mobilize around those. If if you found yourself back at the helm of a, a credit card operation, what would be you know, two or three priorities that you would be communicating to your team in terms of of 2023? So I think that of course all depends. Depends on uh, what that portfolio looks like. Uh, again, what what is that customer population? Am I skewing um, to a particular region? Am I skewing to a particular uh, risk tier? If I'm skewing more prime plus, super prime, uh, where these consumers are, again, clearly more liquid, um, where we saw those payment rates uh, increase dramatically in, in 2020, spending had decreased, payments were up. Um, and fast forward to, to late 22, we've seen spending kick back in, uh, but we still continue to see in those segments, I would say a little bit slower balance growth than we've seen in prime uh, and, and the non-prime zones. Uh, and so, um, you know, really trying to make sure we're understanding, we're serving those customers, um, doing everything that we can to serve them well, um, whether it's the apps uh, interact, you know, how they interact with us, um, and also um, preparing, making sure that I have the data I need, that if uh, things were to deter deteriorate, uh, that, you know, do I have the data that I'm looking for um, in order to manage those uh, customer relationships? Do I have a pre-collection strategy in place uh, to address that? Um, bankruptcy, we have started to see now bankruptcy increase after really decreasing and, and remaining relatively low and stable uh, for two to three years. Uh, we've started to see coming off, off that uh, low. And, and I think bankruptcy, um, I think of the low prime zone uh, where 
again, you want to be the the lender that even if the the consumer declares bankruptcy, um, would they consider um, keeping you and paying you? Um, and so uh, on the lower end, I, I would again make sure I've got access to data uh, where I can use that data, understanding the collectability uh, of the consumer, understanding uh, their ability to pay, being able to put the right priority uh, to the right customer relationship to both serve them, again, serving them both uh, in a uh, current mode, in a pre-collections mode, and also serving them well uh, in the collections mode as, uh, as, again, consumers have choices. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, something that, that I learned early on was um, if you've got a consumer and, they're, um, and they have multiple choices to pay, uh, but they have limited funds, uh, you want to be the one that's preferred. And so doing the things that are necessary to be preferred in the consumer's mind in terms of the hierarchy of payment. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And we're certainly, we're having a lot more conversations on collections with customers now than we've had in a long, long time. Paul, and again, there's so much data. There's just uh, mm -hmm. so much vast data that is so helpful uh, for our customers. Uh, and sometimes I think it's they don't know how to gain access to that data. Uh, or how to use that data. And again, Josh, you know, I th think that's where um, we have so many folks and resources available uh, to help our, our customers understand that. Oh, agreed. Before uh, Craig gives me the hook on my section here, Paul, any any controversial stakes you want to put in the ground in terms of uh, predictions or things you expect to see this year? Predictions are what we expect. I think it depends on really the, the severity of what um, the the Federal Reserve in terms of interest rates, um, what they're willing to do, the severity of uh, inflation, uh, and how that will continue to ripple uh, to the average consumer's pocketbook. Um, you know, I think as we look out, um, we expect to see a continuation uh, in the expansion or growth of delinquency. Um, in many cases, if, if you take the last two and a half years on the chart and just fold them out, uh, you pretty much see that uh, by the third quarter of 22, it's a continuation of what we saw in fourth quarter of 19 into the first quarter of 20. You just see pretty much continuation of lines, whether it's balance growth, but all delinquency growth. Um, and so what we were talking about then is what we're talking about now, how to grow you know, and, and use smarts, uh, how to use the data that you have access to, or how to gain access to data that you don't have that's going to enable you to continue to grow in a smart way um, during uh, what some would, would say are are less certain times. Um, again, I think it all depends on, on where, again, um, the factors are, are driving us in the economy in terms of unemployment and <clears throat> employment. Thanks, Paul. Paul, any uh, thoughts on what issuers should be looking for from the fraudsters? Everything from the fraudsters. Uh, you know, I think one, uh, the one thing that we've heard universally for the last year is that, and, and I know we've got a lot of uh, our listeners or a lot of your listeners are uh, what I would call an enterprise institution. They're serving deposits, loans, they're serving uh, many different types of relationships. Um, you know, definitely we have heard and seen significant 
deposit fraud uh, over the last year, significant increase from years past. And uh, I think part of what I've heard is that um, the credit folks have an ability to ramp up and, and definitely uh, interrogate uh, the lending transaction. And I think that uh, on the deposit side, um, it's just a different experience, um, thinking that it's uh, a little bit different uh, exposure that they have. But I think what they're finding and what we're seeing is very similar schemes that are being put together um, on the deposit side uh, and then how to propagate what I had always referred to reg e fraud. How do I uh, perpetuate electronic uh, wire fraud, ACH fraud uh, through the deposit account? And uh, and so we've seen just a tremendous amount of that in the last year. And I think how to deploy resource, resources against that uh, is important. I think that a lot of it comes back to electronic channel um, where many of these accounts were originated through uh, the internet um, and making sure that um, you're doing everything you can as a depository institution to, to stop uh, that type of fraud. Um, on the, the lending side, uh, again, doing the things that I think many of uh, the lenders know how to do, which is interrogating uh, the individual. I think that um, in many cases, uh, you know, I'll make the comment, I think that we've always gotten used to in, in the industry of thinking about credit first. Do I know my customer and, and thinking of credit first, but then really interrogating fraud as a secondary uh, part of the transaction. And I think that on the on online channels, I think that there are opportunities to bring more of the identity and fraud protection elements into the front end of the transaction um, as much as credit, uh, rather than thinking of, you know, some would call it second day types of activities. Um, because I think in many cases, those second day activities uh, may not uh, provide you the same liberty you have up front um, in terms of being able to deny uh, further into the process. So I, th I think that's something to look out for and, and watch if there's opportunities to move those processes around. Wow, this has been a great, rich conversation already, Paul. I actually think we're gonna have to break this into two episodes given the raft of questions that we have um, uh, on our list uh, still ahead of us. Um, but before we go for this session, I'm assuming you're good to stay for the next one, Paul. The Absolutely. Next Great. Glad to be here. Basic question for you. Are you a Ford, Chevy, or Toyota truck guy? I'm a Ram truck guy. There you go. Chevy. Thanks again, <laughs> Paul. 